Wish your family and friends a sweet new year with Jewish Boston's free Rosh Hashanah e-cards. Pick from any of our unique designs, write your own message, and hit send. It's that easy. Go to jewishboston.com slash cards to send yours today. Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hey, Dan. Hi, Miriam. You know, Rosh Hashanah is nearly upon us. And is it just me or did 5780 last forever? Thankfully, we're moving on. And from one year to the next is a time of taking stock and starting fresh. For reasons that will be explained in this episode, water has always been an essential part of Jewish ritual for marking a change in time, a rite of passage, or a new beginning. Immersing in a mikvah, or ritual immersion pool, is one of the oldest Jewish traditions. It has a fascinating past, but as I learned during this conversation with our guest today from a Boston-area mikvah, it has never felt more relevant. Mayim Chaim is one of the most interesting and unique Jewish organizations in Greater Boston. And I'm not just saying that because I used to work there, although it was indeed my very first job in the Jewish community. No, it's because Mayim Chaim is a mikvah rooted in ancient tradition, reinvented for the 21st century to serve the modern Jewish community of today. For anyone looking to enhance their Jewish education or wade further into Jewish rituals, Mayim Chaim is a wellspring of experiences and information. And yes, there will be water puns in this episode, and frankly, no, we are not sorry. We are thrilled to welcome three experts to the podcast today. Carrie Bornstein, the executive director of Mayim Chaim, who is also my former boss. Jessica Rosenberg, the director of the Rising Tide Open Waters Mikvah Network. And Amalia Mark, Mayim Chaim's rabbinic intern. Jessica and Amalia, thank you all so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. We're so glad to be here. Really glad to be here. Thanks so much for having us. So firstly, Dan and I welcome, we actually encourage any water or mikvah related puns in this episode. We're going to do it. So let's dive into these questions. We've spoken frequently on this podcast about all kinds of Jewish rituals, some well-known, some more obscure, some observed by many Jews, and some observed by few. Carrie, for listeners out there who may not be familiar with mikvah and Jewish ritual immersion, could you give them a bit of a primer? I can do that. The mikvah is an ancient Jewish ritual that stems back to our earliest texts, and it is uh, it's a ritual bath that is used for different life transitions. People come to mark different times of healing and celebration and transitions in their lives. The mikvah is a tool of Jewish ritual that is used to mark different kinds of life transitions where people come in for a brief water ritual to mark some kind of transition and separation from uh, something that was in their lives to something that can be or will be. 
Many of the reasons that people come to immerse in a mikvah are commanded according to Jewish law. There are specific reasons why someone would uh, traditionally have to immerse. And those reasons are uh, brides before their wedding. If you're converting to Judaism, that's the, the final ritual in the process of conversion. And married women who immerse monthly following menstruation is the, the traditional use called nida. And all of those reasons are about marking different kinds of transitions. So it's going from something other than Jewish to Jewish or going from single to married or going from uh, a time of physical separation to a time of togetherness. And what's been fascinating to watch is all of the people over the years who have said, I've got this other transition going on in my life and I don't have to immerse, but I'd like to. And this is a ritual that we have built in to mark those kinds of transitions. So that's what we do at Mayim Chaim. Our goal is to be as welcoming and accessible and inclusive as possible. And we're helping uh, to change the face of the Boston Jewish community because of our work and make Jewish life more welcoming and beautiful and accessible and meaningful and doing that all over the country and the world now. now how can a mikvah reflect the community that it's in? How does Mayim Hayam reflect greater Boston and how does it make Judaism really more accessible to people? So it's funny, the mikvah is probably, I have a hard time thinking about any aspect of Jewish life that could be more restrictive or more exclusive or have more barriers to entry than the mikvah, right? So it's a ritual that many people don't know about. It requires going into a place that you don't, you've probably never heard of before, you haven't been to. You have to take off all of your clothes, get in the water, recite Hebrew. There's just a ton of reasons why somebody might say, mm, I'm thinking no, not for me. And so when we really start with the person at the center and their experience and what's going on for them and like a design thinking kind of model and put them at the center and we're able to actually open a lot of it up and say, what if this place were beautiful? What if it felt good to come to this place? What if it actually felt comfortable and meaningful and accessible and there for you, for whoever you are? whatever your identity is and whatever reason you might be coming, it makes a real shift to say, it actually doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be just for one type of person, one type of reason, one way of doing this, one time of doing this. And it, it opens up Jewish life to be a model for what it means to be inclusive and beautiful. And that's the kind of thing that if we can do that at a mikvah, we sure hope that we can create that kind of feeling at someplace like a synagogue or a school or a camp that have way fewer barriers to entry, that there's something to be learned there also. I think Boston specifically is a very interested and eager community. We have all of these universities around. It's a very learned population and group that really, I think, likes to dig into things. And so it, it makes sense to me that this worked in Boston because of our flavor and our, our culture and our, I think Boston is a very different kind of city as it relates to different types of Jews interacting with one another. It's much more integrated than other cities that I've, I've seen. And that is something that we really value at Mayim Chaim. Jessica could certainly speak to other communities around the country and the world and, and different cultures and how 
how other communities are adapting this model for their use? I'd say that in certain communities, I think it's not obviously quite the same as Boston, but you have a community mikvah model where you have all different types of people meeting at this mikvah. And it's a unique kind of situation. And it either reflects the community or it's an outlier and it's bringing the community together um, more. I actually spoke to someone in um, Memphis, Tennessee yesterday who was telling me about how it's common to belong to like multiple different synagogues and how people meet at this mikvah as a meeting point of all the different types of Jews in their community, which was just very interesting to me. And then you have other models where this mikvah is really leading the way in terms of uh, plurality and openness and engaging people in it in a different way. In London, for example, there's um, a mikvah project that's starting there and London is a traditionally Orthodox community because in Europe, that's the way that the community functions. It has a traditionally Orthodox structure. And then you have things that crop up as outliers. So you start to have a reform community. You start to have this and that and things that are off at the norm. And this mikvah project there is is certainly an offshoot of that, offshoot of the reform movement there. And it's forging the way in terms of bringing out different aspects of the community and openness and I wanted to follow up uh, on one thing that Carrie said. I, I love this idea of design thinking around a mikvah. It's always when I think about 21st century Judaism and I think about Jewish organizations and design thinking is such a critical thing for us to do, yet a mikvah is centered on ritual. You're turning the model a little bit so that the mikvah is centered on you and the ritual is almost secondary to your need. I would frame it. I don't know about the secondary piece. I, I think like with a person at the center, that works. And I think the what we try to do is not so much create a hierarchy of what or who is at the center. And I don't know that's necessarily what you're saying. But the thing that I think works about the mikvah is that we can take the essence of the ritual and say, okay, there's a pool of water. It's constructed in a certain way. And a person comes in they immerse three times. Typically, there's there's a blessing. They go home like what? So like taking the essence and the core of that and saying, what can we build around that? How can that mold to the person who's immersing? One of the things that I think we do really well is look at something like what has to be versus what could be one of our one of our main seven principle or core principles as an organization is halakha. And so it's very clear when we opened as an organization, there should be a kosher mikvah. There shouldn't be any question if somebody wants to use the mikvah that it is, it's built under rabbinic supervision and there are rules about how a mikvah is constructed. It has to be with water, not with chocolate milk. We sometimes ask kids to come in for programs and say, you design your own mikvah. What would it be like for you? And they say like, oh, it'd be filled with chocolate milk and that'd be great. And actually one of the specific rules says it has to be water. So, okay, it has to be water. Could the water be warm? Sure. Let's make the water warm. Could there be beautiful lights shining into the water that you could choose if you want green or purple or red or yellow? Yeah, like nothing that says we can't do that. And that kind of really builds around. I think the mikvah is a wonderful ritual to play with in that way because it doesn't require a minion. So so the mikvah can actually be, you can play with it in a lot of fun ways because it's not something that requires a minion, for example, to participate in. It doesn't need a certain number of people to agree on how it's going to be done for the sake of community, which has its place in Jewish life in serious ways. 
mikvah is a very solitary personal ritual. There's one person goes in and they do what they do when they do it, how they do it, why they do it doesn't actually have any impact on anybody else. So that allows us to be very free with with how it all goes down. COVID-19 has had a profound effect on everything, and in particular, Jewish communal life. We're a people who gather, and it can be profoundly challenging for those who observe the commandments around mikvah, which requires physical immersion. So what are some of the struggles you've faced at Mayim Chaim during this time? Oh, a lot. First and foremost, the biggest struggle that we've faced is how do we ensure the safety of our community? This is a ritual that pretty much by definition, you can't so much transfer it to Zoom and say, well, we'll we'll do it online. By definition, it involves leaving your home and going out into the world and all those things I say, taking off your clothes, going into water. So there's a lot of questions. There's no roadmap for this. There's no on the governor's reopening plan, mikvah doesn't show up in any of the phases. That would have been amazing. Oddly enough, we've had to really pull together our resources. I think that's the wonderful thing about like we are, it's purposeful that we are set up as a community mikvah. This isn't a, an organization that has one person in charge or one rabbi who calls the shots or one deciding factor. And that's, it sure would be easier if we did. I got to say, it would be easier and we would lose so much. And so it's worth it to have the community involved and engaged. And it it means that we're also able to pull together a group of different rabbis and a group of different medical professionals and lean on different opinions and incorporate data and feedback and figure out how we can incorporate our values with safety and meld things together to still give the experience that we're looking for. Just ensuring the community's safety has been, that's a challenge. And that's in part why we made the decision to close down originally is because everything was moving so fast, as we remember. And no one really knew a whole lot about how this thing spread and what was happening. And we we wanted to make sure we could pause and not we just weren't willing to take the risk that even one person could get exposed on our watch. And so that's been a whole process to come through. Another challenge is that it's just our ability to be present for the community has really gone down at a time when the needs have really only gone up. This is a time of extreme change and extreme transition. And that's what we do. That's what we're here for. And it's it's been challenging to know that we can't really be there for the community in the way that we would want to, even though it's the right thing to do to, to take this pause and, and close down. Really happy to say that we're, we're in the process of reopening now. I don't know when this is going to air, but in September, I mean, please God, if the numbers are not back, we're watching things constantly. But we expect to be open in, in September. At the time that we're recording this, we're within a couple of a day or so of being able to welcome people in for immersions again, which feels really wonderful and exciting. And we've created new immersion ceremonies for rejoining the community and for dealing with challenges of mental health and for caregivers. So that's exciting. And Amalia can certainly speak more to some of the challenges that we've faced around how, so how do we connect with our community? How we, how do we engage them? How do we teach them? And what can we do online, even though we can't immerse in the mikvah online? actually found some extraordinarily creative ways to reach the community and tested some of the assumptions that we've had, a lot of the assumptions that we've had about how things actually need to be, both teaching and with the mikvah. And, and so Malia, you know, has great things to share about what 
what she and the education team have done in that respect. Yeah. So let's continue on that point. How, how in terms of education, because that's a big part of what Mayim Chaim does, how did you pivot from being like a very uh, experiential, come to the mikvah, see it in person model to offering virtual education opportunities? A great question. And I will say in full transparency, our education team was nervous. Because how do you go from telling kids to put your hands in the mikvah, see the water, look for the room, do the scavenger hunt, the the full body exposure to mikvah, everything from walking into the building and smelling the chlorine to being in the art gallery. How do you take that to the virtual world? And I think that we really try to be creatively courageous. And I think there is a need for that right now. So we took our curriculum for teaching Intro to Mikvah for Intro to Judaism, and we taught that online. And we were able to pilot it and refine it and then offer it again and again and make it better each time. So we have been able to teach synagogues in Philadelphia about Mikvah. We've been able to teach local synagogues about mikvah. And I think that, again, like these opened doors for us that just didn't exist before and discovering which things can become experiential, which things we can offer avenues for people to try out at home. That's still in progress. And I think that's okay because so much of the education that's happening online right now feels like a lab. We're all in this big creative lab together and we are all like watching things explode and then figuring out how to tinker and make it right. So I have been teaching our bat mitzvah program for daughters and moms and we just wrapped our second virtual cohort. Very first time. Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you. Mazel tov to all the bat mitzvah girls and their families. But we, we taught this program over the summer for the very first time because it's virtual. So again, a door just opened that had never existed before. And we had a family from Canada. We had families from New York. We had families from Western Mass. So again, like we had this amazing North American cohort of girls who were all going through this big question of how do you have a life transition in the midst of a pandemic? Um, And one of the big pieces that we kept in the virtual beneath the surface, which is typically a two and a half hour long three day program, three Sunday program. So that's a lot of hours. We cut it down a lot. And moms and daughters at the end get to create a ritual together that's private just for them. And that is the highlight of the program. We send out post-program surveys and that's the finding we discovered. Moms and daughters are connecting because they are ritual creators. And we at Mayim Chaim support that. So that's something, even if people cannot come and have a full body immersion at our mikvah, we can support their ritual creation to have a full body experience some other way. Um, So I think that we're still creating and we're still teaching. And I think the most amazing thing is that we are still open online as an education center for a mikvah. One of the things I really love about Mayim Chaim is that you have so many types of immersion ceremonies uh, for so many different life events. We've obviously bought mitzvah girls, bar mitzvah, uh, healing from an illness, as Carrie mentioned, honoring the process of coming out, milestone birthdays, just just uh, these times of transition in one way or the other. So you just mentioned the moms and daughters kind of creating um, their own rituals. So I'm interested to know how you guys have taken the rituals that you have for immersion and reframed it for how how to do this at home. I can speak to that a little bit, actually. 
I led a hand-washing ceremony for the Foundation for Jewish Camp Mental Health and Wellness Interns. We did it over Zoom. And it's, we, I connected with the program director about how Mikvah is actually right here to support mental health and wellness. Like this is something that we do. And so I taught about Mikvah and then we all, everyone had a little cup, a little bowl and everyone together did this hand-washing ceremony over Zoom. And I acted as the guide, both doing and guiding everyone through this ritual. And it was a pilot. It was a way to try out something new. And I really believe it worked. And again, our survey says it does, that people are connecting to moments that are tangible, Mm -hmm. that maybe, yes, we're sitting on a screen, but we're also collectively doing something together. So hand washing or in beneath the surface, people hold up candles. We have moms and daughters light candles for each other and we hold them up. We create light together. So again, I think that the reframing of, individual but together this this collectively we are not alone and Mm. we can do things together i may not be able to physically reach out and help you but i can do that over zoom and i think that's been something again that we're still growing and experimenting with and i'm watching it work one of the pieces that happened early on was was our actually looking into some of the sources more to learn about what makes a kosher mikvah? When I said before, like, you have to leave your house, you have to go to this place. And we know that natural bodies of water are um, the original mikvah, like that it started with the ocean and lakes and natural bodies of, of water. And the indoor mikvahs were a takeoff of that. But one of the things that was very clear to me that I, I would say to the people like, well, it's not like you could just use your bathtub or a shower. So like it's there are very specific rules about how a mikvah should be constructed and and how it all needs to work. And I was I would have been like the first one to say it just doesn't work that way. It's a nice idea, but you can't. And actually, it's, it's one of these things like the more freeing it is. And we discovered people in the community, rabbis and, and others who have really looked into the sources and discovered ways that things like a shower or a bathtub in extraordinary times like this, that there's categories for different kinds of understandings of how something can work. And so that was fascinating for me. And we were able to to help guide people through. Okay, so if you're comfortable with this interpretation that your bathtub could be a kosher mikvah, how, how would you do that? How do you Create the time and space for yourself and create an experience that is meaningful. So that's different than you're just taking a bath um, and kind of walking people through that. So that was really exciting to see also. And I just want to add, I I, th- I believe it was our partnership with Sviva. It was Hadar and uh, I think one other organization and Mayim Chaim and Rising Tide together. And the essential question, once we decide, okay, once we see that there is some foundation for mikvah at home is how do we bring the sacred to our own space? And again, I think that's something that Mayim Chaim is doing really well right now is we're figuring out the ways that we have created sacred space in a building. We're now translating that to your own home. So we're now entering the high holiday cycle of the Jewish year and immersing in the mikvah for the high holidays is a tradition that can be traced all the way back to the Torah. Why is immersion considered to be so important leading up to the high holidays? 
I think I want to echo something that we Carrie said earlier, which is it's all about transition. Mikva is about recognizing what was in the past and what is to come or what you hope for the future, what will be. And that is the moment of Elul is sitting in, uh, well, I'm looking at my past year. I'm looking at the things I'm proud of. I'm looking at the things that I'm not really happy about. And how am I going to move forward? And this, the ritual of mikvah is tangible. So it takes the, like, the headspace of I'm thinking about myself and I'm reflecting and turns it into a full body experience. So going to the mikvah to walk into Yom Kippur or to walk into Rosh Hashanah is really popular for that reason. I think people want something embodied. And yes, I love to journal. And yes, I love to read. And I need something that's going to pull it together. And so I think one of the reasons why we see or we have seen our numbers rise really high for immersions, for the Yomim Noraim, for the high holidays, is because people have a need to take their preparation and make it full, make it a full body experience. Traditionally, in non-pandemic times, we've had Knocking at Our Hearts, which is our high holiday musical mikvah experience where we as a greater Boston community get together and sing our way to the high holidays. So it's a one night of song and repentance and community voices together. And we have chosen to do that program online this year. And one one thing we talked about when this was coming together was, okay, how do we sing together? That's something that nobody has figured out how to do effectively on Zoom. And I, again, I want to say like this courageous creativity that we're all trying to lean into really hard right now is part of that is saying, we still need this. We still need a community event that will hold us and we're opening it up to the whole world. So whereas before it was just Greater Boston and it was also really limited in numbers and now the scope is so much bigger and whoever comes are the right people to be there. So whoever feels this need to see another person's face, to sing, even if we can't all have our voices together, these are all moments of preparing for the high holidays. And we still need to provide that for the community and it's going to be different and it's going to be different and special for a reason. Like we're not trying to pretend that this pandemic hasn't happened. and we recognize that Mayim Chaim has provided community events and those don't go away just because the format might be different. So knocking at our hearts will be online, virtual, singing with Joey Weisenberg this September 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And we are very hopeful that it will provide what folks need in order to keep moving towards the high holidays and in their preparation. And again, hopefully we'll be able to have people immerse as well post-program. So zooming out a little bit, Mayim Chaim has had... That was a good pun, Miriam Anzevin, zooming <laughs> that was out. That purely unintentional. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't hit any water puns, I just want to say, but... I know, we haven't done any. I know, I feel really bad about that, actually. <laughs> I think we should take a deep dive into rising tide. <laughs> that, that was a good pandemic pun. Let's, let's do that. Float on the surface of mikvah rather than deep dive into rising tide because rising tide is about skimming the surface of all the mikvah. Oh, it was so natural. Thank you for making a splash about that one. 
there's been this incredible influence of Mayim Chaim uh, on the on the Jewish kind of cultural understanding of mikvah here in Boston, obviously, but um, around the country. So, Jessica, do you tell us a backstory about the Rising Tide Mikvah Network and what are the goals of the work? Absolutely. And Carrie, who was there for all of this, obviously, please feel free to jump in at any point if I uh, overlook something or speak slightly off. But as my empire grew in um, popularity and in its amazing mission and success, different communities would come to ask questions for consulting for a wide variety of things for ceremonies, for curriculum, and essentially just born out of that interest and that need, which, you know, over the years manifested in different ways in conferences and um, official consulting in in a variety of different ways. It seemed like what was emerging was that there was potentially a space for a network of uh, mikvah oat to be supporting each other in the work of creating open mikvah and to enable Jews or Jews to be to access the mikvah for both traditional uses and for new creative uses. And there was a a report done by the Heller School um, by some MBA students, and they um, reached out to a variety of communities, existing mikvahs, mikvahs to be, and surveyed the field and found that there was a need and a desire to be united in a network format and to have the mikvah oats support each other, exchange resources, be united a bit more in the field to give support and to bolster this expanding field of, of, of the opening of the ritual of mikvah. So it's not just commanded reasons or traditional reasons, but also for these, as has been mentioned throughout the podcast, variety of different reasons. I spoke to someone yesterday who did monthly immersion for someone who was pregnant rather than just the ninth month, which is a traditional use and just a v- wide variety of different uses. In 2017, there was a convening of the um, founding uh, mikvah members of Rising Tide, and it was born. And here we are about three years later, and we have about 34 members as of yesterday. And we are here as a connecting point to support people who are either interested in building a mikvah in their communities, in serving to see if there's a need for such a mikvah, like a community mikvah in their communities, to bring different um, mikvah models together. There's mikvah oath that are connected to synagogues, but that are more open to beyond just their denomination or their membership. There are JCC affiliated synagogues. There are federation affiliated synagogues. There's community mikvahs like Mayim Hayim, who are independent um, organizations, but serve the entire community as a whole. And we are all here with both a variety of different needs and also the same needs. Obviously, like COVID has been like the great equalizer, like in terms of like, we may all have different communities and different um, types of immersions and different um, models, but oh, we all want to be safe. We all want to make sure that we're opening and closing in the safest possible ways and giving people the resources to support their staff, their lay leadership, their mikvah guides, and make sure that they are supported and have everything they need to make sure their communities also have everything they need. Rising Tide is here to unite everyone and provide education resources, programs to do that. Our next question 
is for all three of you. It's more of a pop culture question. So one of our most popular episodes recently was all about dispelling or investigating the myths people have about mikvah after watching the Netflix show Unorthodox, um, where the main character visits a mikvah. There's been so much interest in the show and how it represents women who observe uh, the laws of mikvah or nida. Have you had questions? I assume the answer is yes, but have you had questions um, from folks who have watched the show and are confused or interested and want to learn more? What are some of the myths about mikvah that you'd like to see debunked? So many. And there's been some great writing on on this. Like Esther Kostanowitz wrote an article with it was TV gone Jewy. I was interviewed. It was like I think my favorite thing that I've been asked to do ever where I gotta look it up. I think it was for Hey Alma, where somebody was writing an article on mikvah in pop culture and asked me to like review all of the different clips and give my take on like five out of seven steps. Would you rate this mikvah accurate? I was like, I'm getting paid to watch these clips and write them up. It was the best thing ever. I will find it for you. But I like a couple of the, the sort of myths that stand out in my mind. First is just people are continually shocked that mikvah is is open and accessible to people of all genders. Usually people are like, wait, what? And you, I almost said something before when you mentioned bar mitzvah, right? Because usually people are like, wait, wait, what? Did she just say bar Men, wait, what? Men can do this too? Yes, men um, too. I know. So, and and men actually come for all of the reasons that women come to Mayim Chaim, um, to put this in a gender binary there. But literally, even like even um, people who come following menstruation in a heterosexual couple, a man might immerse monthly also at that same time because they've decided that they want this to be an egalitarian practice and this is something that they're both going to take on and and both immerse prior to their being physically together again, which is, I, I just think, beautiful. But people of all genders come for all different reasons. Mayim Chaim is explicitly open and welcoming to to people who are transgender. We have a an immersion ceremony specifically for marking a moment of the process of transitioning genders. We have trans mikvah guides. We are open and welcoming in, in every way to, to people of any gender. And, and so that's one biggie. This is for the whole Jewish community. When we, when we say it's for the whole Jewish community, like whoever you are. So that's, that's one. I mean, there's the other like, oh, it's only for the Orthodox and it's only for, you know, a specific reason. Like, I, I think we've, we've talked enough already that, that would hopefully have dispelled that one already in this, in this podcast. But I don't know, Molly, Jessica, what do you think? Yeah, I think like another one I'd say related to our mission, like there isn't like one type of community that needs a community or open mikvah. Like you may think, oh, in X and Y, Z community, they're liberal. So there's no observant Jews there. So they don't need a mikvah. No, they do. They definitely need a mikvah. There are Jews of all stripes, as you know, Carrie had just spoke about that need a mikvah. They, maybe they don't know they need it yet, but they do. And there isn't one type of place or community who necessarily needs a mikvah. They all do. And no matter what the demographic may represent. I think one of the big uh, mikvah myths that I would like to debunk right now is it's not about being clean or dirty. Thank you. (laughs) I've had so many fights with people on the internet about this after that show came out. It's not about that. It's about the being ready. And one of the ways we can feel ready for something is through action, is through 
actually taking off nail polish or taking off a piece of clothing that you might wear all the time or whatever it is. But the traditional ritual act of getting ready to go into the water is to mentally and physically prepare you for that transformative moment of going under the water and coming out differently. Whether you come out as a Jew, whether you come out feeling a little more whole, it is not about being clean or dirty. So I would I would like that to be on the record. It is officially on the record on this podcast. Anyone who's listening, let it be known. <laughs> uh, henceforth. And I would like to say also that one of the um, myths I'd like to debunk is that it's about like, you have to be a certain age or a certain type of person. We have a mom and her daughters who would come every Rosh Chodesh to immerse at Maim Chaim. And one of those daughters was like, it has been immersing since she was five years old. And we had a child come and he immersed because he was turning a double digit. And how often do you add a digit to your age? Nine to 10. Oh. <laughs> and, and I just think again, like this is for the lifespan. And thinking about this is just for married women who are Orthodox again. Just let's just take that whole thing down and burn it to the ground. And instead, like we're here and saying this is the mikvah that's actually real for everyone. Is a mikvah that every single person, regardless of like age, life cycle, where they are in their life, can enter and come in and immerse. And one of the things that bothered me about that show, not maybe not that show particularly, but just representations of mikvah is is how they represent the people who guide. That really bothered me because like at Mayim Chaim, there are all these volunteer mikvah guides who come from all kinds of backgrounds and identities. Um, and they're not like this fierce, mean lady who's inspecting you for dirt. And that's the vision that is kind of portrayed in the media, but that ain't it. So that's one thing that I think people could could kind of step away from that presentation of like there being an older Jewish lady who's just there to make your life hard. Um, that's not the case at Mayim Chaim, and and that's really not the case. It's sort of like a stereotype that we see in the media. What can I say? Let's let's do away with that one too while we're at it. In service of doing away with that that myth, I just like to plug: we have an online mikvah guide training program that is open. I mean, you have to apply, but it's open to anyone who's interested. Um, the goal is obviously in service of of dispelling that myth that anyone can be a mikvah guide. You can just have an interest. You don't need to have even immersed before. You can learn about what mikvah is. It's a great learning opportunity. And it's just a great skill to learn how to hold space for another person to support them through their journey, to support them as they're um, making a choice to immerse for whatever reason it is, holding no judgment, like supporting another person. It's very spiritual and it's adapted from Mayim Haim's um, in-person training and we'll be running that in the fall. Yeah, so check the show notes because I'll include a link to that um, in the show notes. So we've made it through 45 minutes without using the word unprecedented. And I'm gonna I'm gonna use it. I just used it. Now I'm gonna use it again. Did you see did you see the mug? Someone just posted a picture on Facebook that says, I miss precedented times. <laughs> I want it. I miss them so much. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Well, we're not there yet, but I'm so thrilled to hear that you will be opening soon. That's that's like a weight, another weight that's lifted from this pandemic that is just suffocating. So we're we're facing this unprecedented high holiday season. And I am wondering, as you think through the future, what are your hopes for Mayim Hayim in 5781? My hopes are that we can... um, 
open and stay open safely. That's, I'll just start there. And that we are able to meet our community's needs in, in new and different ways. I think that what I, what I hope might be a silver lining of all of this is that people might have a new appreciation or a new understanding for craving of a ritual in this way. We, I think one of the things that's been so compelling about our work is that we tend to in life, in certainly in non-pandemic times, we, we just go through things so fast and quickly and we're busy and cramming things into our schedule without really um, pausing so much and being mindful of like what we're doing in the hamster wheel that we're on. This has been a massive pause, this pandemic in our, in our lives. And I think that there's something incredibly meaningful about stopping in water and just pausing and noting, where have I been? Where am I now? Where am I going? And I, I think that all of this, people may understand in a new way, the need to sort of do something to mark all of this and to feel either it's returning to the workplace or returning to school or starting online college when you thought you were going to be there in person or um, getting getting married or having a bar bat mitzvah in a very different way than you ever intended before to like to to mark that and say, yep, this is happening. And it's different than I, what I thought it was going to be. And it feels weird and bizarre and different, but like, let's mark it. Let's own it. This is where we are. Let's move forward with it. This is, this goes back to, to the Torah, right? Like the, the whole basis for mikvah come, it's, it's extraordinarily ancient of times of being in quarantine, like literally where, where a person had to separate from the community. And in order to come back into the community, they needed to immerse in water. Like that's where this comes from. So I hope that there's a new appreciation or a different kind of perspective and openness um, on the part of people who would never have thought it was for them before um, that people might get it in a, in a different way. I also hope that I, I, I've really tried to keep us as an organization as, as we've shifted to the online format in many ways, um, really wanting to keep us focused on the things that will make sense for us and for our community for the long term and investing strategically in how we spend our time and what we're working on. And I think a lot of the things that Amalia spoke to before, and, and certainly Jessica also in terms of our seven steps mikvah guide training, these are all things that will be, please God, there will be a vaccine soon and everything will be able to go back to a, a sense of calm and safety and stability again. And I hope that we still teach education programs to um, kids and adults in Austin, Texas, and that they can learn about what we're doing here in Boston. And and this just opens up new doors for how we can fulfill our mission. Yeah, I think I'd be remiss if I, I realized I went through my whole Rising Tide spiel without really kind of the bottom line, which is basically like the goal and mission of Rising Tide is that anyone can not have to go very far to immerse in a mikvah in the way that they want to. So to have what we say, like a rising tide experience. So we work in partnership with, with mikvah around the world to ensure that that's the case. And so that we can all learn from each other and like a rising tide lifts all ships. So like the more one person succeeds, the more we can learn from that. We can learn from what each people, each community rather is doing around the globe and we can all lift each other up and in this like crazy time obviously like we're learning from each other who's opening what are people doing how can we get through this so that we can all kind of support each other and make it out the other side of this stronger more resilient and open for people to to find what they need at the mix
Yeah, I have two hopes for my Mchaim. One is very personal. The first one, the personal one is that I hope to be able to immerse before my wedding in October. That's like when we closed, my first thought was, oh no, <laughs> like very personally, almost selfishly. It was like, I, I literally only imagined immersing at my Mchaim before my wedding. And I don't believe I'm alone in that. So I also hope that we can continue remaining open for all of the people who use us and can't go elsewhere. That's, that's really my hope is that it sometimes it, it means that like a person just doesn't have access to mikvah if we're not open. And I, with all of my heart, pray we can do that safely. Amen. Well, Carrie, Jessica, and Amalia, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about all about Mayim Chaim. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We could keep doing this for another couple hours if you want to, you know, we could be way deeper. <laughs> Nicely done. I'll show myself out. We could do a few more laps. Audience, thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Thank you, as always, to our editor, Jesse. Stay safe, wear a mask, and may we all be signed and sealed for a healthy and happy new year ahead in 5781. 